and welcome to episode 16 of OVS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. I'm your host, Ben Fenn. This episode extends the break from the APSYS 2016 talks that I've been covering. I'm talking to Jesse Gross. If you spent any time on Open vSwitch development mailing lists, then you don't need an introduction to Jesse, but let me say a few words for anyone else. Jesse is one of the best systems programmers around. He's the kind of guy you want on your side. He's uncompromising and writes quality code that passes review the first time and works the first time too. He's an expert on the Open vSwitch Linux kernel module and for a long time was its maintainer. Jesse and I could talk on any number of topics, but this episode is particularly about tunnels and encapsulations, which Jesse knows well. On to the interview. Hello everyone, I'm talking to Jesse Gross today. Jesse has been contributing to Open vSwitch since 2009, first at Nasera and then at VMware post-acquisition. And for much of that time, he's maintained the Open vSwitch kernel module. Jesse, in my opinion most notably, was responsible for getting the kernel module into the upstream kernel. It takes a lot of work, a lot of effort to maintain those relationships with upstream kernel folks and Jesse's done a great job of that. Jesse, do you want to tell us more about yourself or, or your work? Sure. Yeah, so <laughs> I've been working on OVS for a pretty long time at this point, long enough that I can actually remember discussing what we should name the project. And I actually specifically remember not particularly liking the name Open vSwitch because I thought it was a little bit too bland uh, and generic. It's got uh, a little too much open <laughs> in it. Uh, so many projects call themselves open, and it's kind of meaningless uh, for a syllable at this point, or right. two syllables. Right, right, right. Obviously, I lost that, that argument, but it, it seemed like things turned out okay. <laughs> that was so long ago, I don't even remember what side of the argument I was on. Maybe you do. No. <laughs> so, uh, one of the big areas you've worked on over a, a long time is what I think of as tunneling and encapsulation. I, I think our first tunneling protocol was, uh, was GRE. And then from there, we've expanded it into a whole bunch of uh, new encapsulations, uh, many of which weren't even invented at the time that we uh, started out on this. So it, it took me a long time. Uh, at first, I didn't understand at all what these were actually going to be useful for. And I think I understand a lot better now. But uh, what's your view on why people want to use tunnels uh, to, to get packets from one place to another? Yeah, man, I think it's... it's Pretty interesting. I mean, obviously, in order to communicate between servers or any other machines on the internet, I mean, you don't need a tunnel. You can just have you know, IP packets flowing back and forth between each other. I think that the main use case that we're looking at here is actually to provide a level of indirection between, say, the physical network, which is really good at forwarding packets to a specific location, and a logical network um, or, or some other you know, higher level abstraction that's running on top of um, that, that underlay that would allow us to do more sophisticated things um, as far as controlling where the packets should go and, and how they should get there, whether they're encrypted and that kind of thing. So to just really beat down a straw man here, sometimes people come to me and say, well, what about VLANs? I mean, the V actually stands for virtual, so why, why isn't that good enough? Yeah, so I think that the VLANs provide one part of the solution to the problem, which is simply partitioning networks but they're actually not giving the same level of indirection between the, the physical hardware and what's running on top. Um, you know, certainly a, a use case that a lot of people might be more familiar with is if you're running a, you know, using a VPN to connect to your, your work 
uh, network from home, then you, you might want to have the same level of abstraction between the internet, which you don't really know anything about or control, and your, your work network, which is running on top of that. So that's something that the tunnels can provide, but, but VLANs don't because it's too glued to the, the physical hardware. Yeah, I think that gets at one of the key reasons why you really need a tunnel in some cases, that they're not on the same physical network. If you use a VLAN then and you try to send that to your ISP, that's not going to work. It's going to get very confused. Right. So clearly you need them when you're transiting some network that you don't control. But people are using them, I think, more and more even within a single data center that they actually do control. Is that is that a different situation? It's a little bit different, but I think in a lot of ways it's very similar because the idea is that, for example, if you use something like network virtualization, just as a VM on a physical server is providing an abstraction, which is different from the underlying CPU that's running it, you might want to have a network that's running on top, which is decoupled from the physical infrastructure or can provide similar uh, you know, advanced properties, just like we've seen you know, live migration with VMs provide a lot of new, new capabilities that there's no physical analog for. I think network virtualization can do similar things. And so, all this relies on tunnels. So that's the layer of in- indirection that you're talking about. That's right. right. It always gets back to uh, um, the aphorism in systems programming that you can solve any problem by adding a layer of indirection. I knew that was going to come up during this interview. <laughs> uh, I, I should apologize because it's, uh, it, it, it's such a, a trite saying at this point. It, it, but I think people say it because it, it's, true. it's almost true right. <laughs> almost entirely. Sometimes it means you end up with a lot of layers of interaction, though. That's right. OVS has been more than just an implementation of tunnels. You've actually used it to drive forward the state of tunnels in a couple of different ways by implementing uh, brand new tunneling protocols that, that you've designed. So the first one of those that came out of OVS was STT, the, the, the stateless transport tunneling protocol. So why did you do that? What was the motivation be, behind uh, creating a new tunneling protocol? Yeah, so, so I mean, there's a couple issues that they come up with tunneling. I, mean, I think fundamentally tunnels are actually pretty simple. I and mean, basically you have usually two levels of IP headers, so underlay and overlay, and then you have something in the middle. So it shouldn't actually be all that complicated. Uh, so, so the first problem that we ran into was performance. And this isn't really so much the performance you might think of, and, and that actually generating the, the tunnel header is, is complicated. It's not. Um, in the, the simplest form, it, it basically can reduce to, say, a mem copy of some, some tunnel metadata onto the, the front of the packet. But the, the problem that we really had was that uh, NIC hardware network cards that were running in servers had a number of offloads that have been coming in over the years. So things like checksum offload, where the, the card would, would fill in, say, a TCP or UDP checksum um, as it's transmitting the packet. There's other more sophisticated ones. But a, a lot of these have been deployed pretty much universally in common server hardware. And the issue is that they tend to be specialized for protocols that they knew existed, so TCP and UDP primarily. And so when you introduce an encapsulation format in, in front of that, then they can no longer do that offload, and suddenly you've dropped back, say, maybe 10 or 20 years worth of, of uh, NIC hardware advancements. So SCT was basically trying to, to solve that problem. And, and what it did was it introduced a TCP header or TCP-like header, and that's the actual encapsulation header. And so by using that and doing some clever faking out of the TCP fields, you could actually trick the NIC into 
acting just like it's TCP and performing all of those same offloads as doing before. And so you got very similar performance, even with encapsulation. If I remember right, with STT, you can maybe most importantly or very importantly still get the use of the TCP segmentation offload feature in your uh, in your NIC. So when your VM sends or when your host sends a 64K TCP packet, the, the NIC will actually uh, segment it and, uh, and, and transmit it at several frames over the network. Right. Yeah, that's very significant because... A number of operations on, on the server are proportional to the number of packets you're processing and, and not necessarily the length of the packet. And so if you go from a, a 64K super packet that's being segmented by the NIC versus a 1500-byte standard MTU packet, you're actually talking about uh, a difference of approximately 45 times the number of packets. So it can be very significant in the right cases. That's a pretty huge difference. So uh, how much faster did you actually find out it, it was than uh, a competing protocols uh, when, when you were uh, testing it? Well, I remember I mean, this is probably around 2010 or 2011 where this is being developed. So obviously servers were a bit slower at the time. But uh, our primary goal was to be able to hit 10 gigs of throughput, saturating a common 10 gig NIC um, with a single core. These days, that's not quite as impressive, but at the time, we were pretty much maxing out at around uh, 2 gigs, and you know, that was saturating pretty much, you know, that was pretty much the hard limit we could get. So there's there's two sides to uh, to any TCP uh, transmission. There's the send side and, the, and there's the receive side. STT helped on both sides, right? That's right. Um, yeah, so most people typically think of the, the transmit side um, as the, the main one, and certainly SCT does help with the checksum and segmenting that we mentioned before. But receive is often just as hard or, or even harder, and the reason is because you don't have as much control over the packet. So with the uh, transmit, you know, you know, the, the CPU knows exactly what it's doing, um, and you can all nicely lay things out. But on the receive side, you, you tend to get just a, a stream of packets that you can't necessarily control. So SCT particularly helps by forcing very high levels of aggregation of the, the packets. Um, so the same benefit they were talking about on the transmit with TSO, you can do on this receive to aggregate more packets um, and have you know, fewer, say, hypervisor transitions up to a VM. So I got the impression that one of the big benefits with STT was not necessarily faster uh, send and receive performance because often you could actually max out the, the NIC regardless, but you, you got a lot less CPU utilization to, to achieve the performance. That's true, or both are true, certainly. So at the time, uh, both the CPU was maxed out as well as, uh, in many cases, the, the throughput was actually hard to achieve. Now, obviously, as you know, Intel helped us out and, and CPUs got faster. It became much easier to hit those higher line rates, but um, it, it's definitely useful to have more CPU available in any case. I remember reviewing some of the early patches, and it seemed like STT was super challenging to, to implement. How much work did it end up being? It was definitely interesting, for sure. I think a, a lot of the, the challenges were, again, on the receive side, and it had to do with coalescing the packets into a, a single packet very efficiently. I mean, this is zero copy type of optimizations people usually talk about, but it was particularly difficult because different NIC drivers or, or hardware would, would often lay out the memory in, in different ways. Um, and also similarly, different hypervisors would consume the memory in different ways when they were going up to the VM. It ended up being easy to optimize for one situation that had 
pretty terrible results in other situations. So balancing all of those was probably the trickiest part. Was it that the, the protocol itself was difficult or that you were trying to uh, eke every last ounce of uh, performance out of it that you could? It, it was, I mean, it's definitely a performance issue. Um, just having a very simple implementation of SCT is, is not very complicated. Obviously, since SCT was specifically trying to be fast, uh, there's not much point in having a, a slow implementation of SCT. <laughs> so it was a combination of just the, the general mechanism of the protocol was, was complicated to implement uh, in a fast way, and then tuning it beyond that was also difficult. So it's pretty easy to look at STT as an abuse of, uh, I don't know, the, the protocols or, or, or the intent of the NIC designers. I've heard that worse before. <laughs> uh, did, did you find that there were reasons that, say, particular NICs couldn't implement it because they had, I don't know, different ideas or, or they, they, they helped you out in ways that weren't helpful? Sometimes. There, there's definitely things to be careful of, um, particularly when the protocol was initially being designed. You, know, you had to kind of figure out what they were trying to do and and how to work with them, not against them, I guess. But at the same time, I mean, they're all acting along, you know, they need to follow TCP and they're also following common driver interfaces on Linux and, and Windows. So that helps to constrain and standardize their behavior a bit, even if the actual offloads are not themselves standardized. So I think that uh, at... VMware, we've kind of started moving away from, from STT, uh, be, because of, I don't know, various reasons. But, uh, does, does STT have a future? Do you, do you expect to still see people using it a few years down the road? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there'll still be pockets of it in, in different places. But, I mean, to be honest, I, I'm actually surprised that STT has been living on as long as it has. Um, you know, it, it was definitely intended at the time to be kind of a, you know, Inter, you know, a short-term solution uh, to address this shortcoming of NICs and not something that is really fundamental to computer science. So that brings me to uh, the second tunneling protocol that uh, you've had a hand in designing and, and implementing called Genev. I think that this time you've started from the beginning working through IETF and, and working toward standardization. So what brought you to do all this? Geneva is trying to address the, the second problem that we ran into with some of the existing tunneling protocols. So with Geneva, we weren't trying to hit the, the performance problem because we knew that, uh, so that, that's not a fundamental thing. That, that's simply a matter of what the existing NICs that were designed before tunneling protocols became popular were targeting. So if we took more of a, a longer term view and worked with the NIC manufacturers, then we wouldn't have to, to deal with any of the interesting things that SCT has done over time. So the issue with Genev or what it's targeting, targeting at is metadata. Um, so most tunneling protocols have the ability to insert some additional shim uh, or, or option space inside them. Um, you know, so for example, GRE, which has been around for a long time um, and has used a number of different applications, has a 32-bit key, and that's pretty popular um, in much the same way that the VLANs are, are partitioning networks. It's the same idea often, but just a larger space. But there's a huge number of different uses for, for metadata in encapsulation protocols, especially when they're being used for network virtualization. Um, so they, they tend to break down in a few different categories. 
So one might be security. Um, so you could already consider partitioning to be a, a form of security, like VLANs are doing. But you, you might want to do it a much finer grain. So you could take, say, the input port that the switch, uh, that the packet ingress on, or some identity information, such as a, a logged in user. And so you might want to store some of that in the packet. And, um, you know, that, that's just one use case. It, it quickly, um, you know, starts to, to blow up the number of bits that you actually want in the header. So GRE had 60, uh, had 32 bits. SCT had 64 bits. But we knew that, um, neither of those was enough. And also we knew that what we could figure out now was never going to be the, the final word on, on what was actually necessary. We were going to keep on trying to innovate and, and do new things. So that's a long way of saying the idea behind Geneve is to be much more future-proof and extensible. Um, and so Geneve includes a variable set of option fields um, that allows you to add and define new metadata over time. It's an extensible set of TLVs, right? That's right, yes. You've been working on Geneve for quite a while. Do you know when you started working on it? Yes. Yeah, so I actually, so we've been working on it for about three and a half years at this point. Um, so that's a pretty long time for something that is not too large of a header. But the first version was actually published on Valentine's Day uh, of 2014, which of course prompted all kinds of jokes and, and that kind of thing. It's your love letter to the world, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so uh, is, is this a typical time for something to go through the ITF or are there, uh, I don't know, special challenges uh, um, to, to this? I, I haven't been involved with IETF very much. It's probably pretty typical for, for most standards bodies. I think that you know, standards take a, a long time to you know, go back and forth on the details. I actually think that in some ways they've been accelerating a bit recently, um, just because with open source becoming more popular, there's much more of an attitude that you know you can just go do it and and show things, which is probably actually the original spirit of IETF, but maybe that got lost uh, for a little while in between. Oh, I always get uh, really tired in meetings, and I just want to go off and build something. So I, I entirely understand that. that. That is definitely, I think, the, the right way to do things. Presumably, some of this is because you had to discuss things and, and, and compromise with people. So what what are some of the compromises that you, that you had to work out? What did you, uh, I, I don't know, uh, what, what concessions or, or what changes did you have to make? Well, I mean, so I think... By and large, actually, the, the protocol hasn't changed too much. Um, and a lot of that is simply because we were trying to be very conscious about, um, you know, introducing something very new and very complicated that, you know, might decide after the end of this. It just wasn't a good idea at all. So, so what we took, did was we took, uh, VXLAN, which is pretty widely deployed as an encapsulation protocol for network virtualization at least. Um, that's very simple, it's just a, an eight byte header inside of UDP. And so we, we took that and we added on TLV options. And TLVs are, are probably the, the most widely used mechanism for adding extensibility in a number of different protocols, whether the networking or, or just different aspects of computer science. And we glued them together along with just a, a few other improvements that we noticed um, that people have been making in other telling protocols. And so I think by and large that, that's actually served us uh, pretty well as we've seen more and more implementations come out. I got the impression from hearing you talk before that TLVs were actually pretty controversial uh, among some vendors. 
they are um, they're controversial in very low level data plane protocols. So I, so I think in, in higher level applications, they're you know, they're pretty well accepted, and even say TCP. Um, you know, most TCP packets on the internet have TLVs on them, but for packets that are processed by physical network hardware, some people tend not to like them because they can be more difficult to implement compared to just a, a very fixed header structure. The good thing is what I see happening more and more these days is that we're actually having much more programmable hardware. So, so Barefoot has been one of the companies that's been leading that charge. Cadvium and also Mellanox have all been very active, and, and I think other vendors are following as well. So, uh, I, you know, I know in the past there have been some protocols that have introduced TLVs and they haven't been successful, but I actually think that now is the right time, and this will actually be a little bit of a sea change. So the story on Genev isn't completely written yet, but trying to do a little bit of an advanced retrospective, um, <laughs> are, are there things that you wish you'd done differently or that uh, you, you wish you'd been able to get in or leave out? There's always more things that I, I could imagine or being even more generic or, or that kind of thing, you know, maybe a universal tunneling protocol. But th that's also challenging because you, know, you, you want to have the scope that is broad enough that it's useful and flexible into the future, but also not so wide that it becomes difficult to use or difficult to implement, or people can't accept it because you know, you've skipped too many steps or that kind of thing. Probably mostly along th those lines. Um, you know, I, I, I might have preferred to do some things different, but you know, I actually think probably it was the right decision for this point in time. Okay. So the encapsulation I keep hearing about a lot is uh, NSH, uh, Network Service Header. And as I understand it, it's uh, encapsulation that's kind of specialized in some ways for implementing service function chaining, uh, inserting services into a network uh, uh, between endpoints. So I, I know that, uh, or I understand that NSH is kind of competing with, with Genev at, at IETF in some ways. Is that, is that accurate? Um, a, a little bit. They are in, in different, slightly different areas, as you mentioned, because NSH is more for, focused on, on service chaining. Um, but at the same time, they're not completely different use cases, and certainly Genève has been used to do service chaining as well. I think the, the real fundamental difference between them um, is the one that we just touched on a little bit before, which is around how extensible the protocol actually should be. Genève does take a, a more extensible stance. Um, some people might consider that to be a more software uh, stance, but um, I, I do think it can be used in, in many different cases. Um, and, and that's because of the use of TLVs. NSH does also support TLVs, um, but its primary focus is on a fixed number of fixed size headers that it keeps in the packet. Um, and, and that's what most people are, are actually implementing. Um, so it's not quite as extensible as Genev in practice. As I understand it, Genev is uh, an L2 and L3 tunnel uh, where you uh, carry Ethernet packets inside of uh, something that's wrapped in IP. But NSH has a couple of different possible places you can put it in the stack. You can put it in the same place as Genev, um, or you can put it directly inside inside Ethernet. Is that an advantage of NSH, or it, uh, can Genev be put in the same places? Or um, yes and no. So, so one correction is you, you can run other types of packets besides Ethernet inside either NSH or, or Genev. So it's 
But Genève is primarily a um, an L3 tunneling protocol. You, you could imagine splitting up Genève in in much the same way, essentially taking the, the metadata part um, off of the IP header and just inserting it in different places. I, I think in practice, based on the implementations that I've seen using both NSH and Genev, that, that tends to be a little bit more of a, a niche use case. And so Genev primarily tries to keep things a little bit simpler. But yeah, there's pros and cons to each one. One of the issues that I see coming up over and over again over the years with all kinds of tunnels is uh, related to MTU because whenever you tunnel something, you end up uh, making your packets longer and, and therefore if you already had a long packet, then it can easily exceed the, the maximum length of packet that's supported by your network. And it seems like there's a lots of different ways to deal with, uh, uh, with MTU problems, but none of them is a good solution for, for every use case. What's I don't know, what's the right way to, <laughs> to handle uh, MTU problems uh, in, in tunnel environments? Well, it depends on the use case. So okay. Okay. <laughs> I think that most of these protocols that we were just talking about are targeted at data center use cases, which tend to be focused on high speed and low latency. But also, you may have control over the whole stack of the network. And so in those cases, Definitely the, the most popular solution is just to raise the, the MTU of your, your physical network so that it accounts for the, the encapsulation headers. And then basically at that point, you've, you've kind of just punted the problem, um, but you don't have to deal with anything like fragmentation or, or you know, other things like that, which can be complicated and, and slow. You know, if, if you're running something over the internet, then typically you would have less control over the, the underlying network but a lot of times the actual speeds and latencies would be much lower as well. So in that case, fragmentation, you know, even something at the IP layer, you know, might be something that's a lot more reasonable and less painful to do. Several versions ago, uh, OVS supported path MTU discovery for tunnels, but we, we dropped it, uh, uh, I, I looked it up in 2013 uh, when we released uh, uh, 1.10. I, I think that was because of uh, layering violations. Were those conceptual problems or problems with the implementation? Would it ever make sense to reintroduce path MTU discovery? Uh, I think so, yeah. It, it was definitely a, a layering violation issue. Um, the problem was that at the time, OVS was pretty much entirely focused on Ethernet. I mean, it still has a heavy Ethernet bent today, but I think that there might be you know, more and more different use cases in the future. And so that particular implementation was trying to do path MTU discovery, which is fundamentally an IP layer at a device which is acting at the Ethernet layer. And so that required all kinds of nasty things like you know, forging addresses and you know other not great things to do. You know, I, I think that if OVS or, and the things running on top of it are implementing, say, a router, uh, which is common with network virtualization now, then uh, PathMT discovery fits in perfectly well with that, that conceptual model. And um, you know, if we can figure out how to get the, the actual implementation to make sense with OVS, then you know, it can make sense in terms of the network traffic too. Now we've talked about a lot of, a lot of important stuff and I, I, have, some, I have some trivia. Uh-oh, <laughs> sounds scary. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, not, it's not that trivial, you, you probably remember. So uh, OVS at one point uh, supported a tunneling protocol called CapWAP, but we, introduced, but we dropped that in version 1.10. 
what's CapWap and why, why did we ever have it in OVS? So I think CapWap uh, stands for Control and Provisioning of Wireless Access Points. Um, Which wasn't something we did. Exactly right. <laughs> it's used for, for managing, obviously, wireless access points, but at its core is another encapsulation protocol that had been introduced uh, as part of that standard. And it had been implemented in a number of different hardware switches that were were relatively common at the time. And so having CapWap in OVS was a mechanism to talk to those switches. Um, you know, since then, there's been a lot more protocols that have been introduced in hardware switches, and so we didn't quite need this type of workaround. Oh, were we actually using it to talk to hardware switches? I, I forgot that. I don't know whether anybody actually did it in practice, uh, but but that was the the intention. Oh, okay. Uh, and then there's there's a couple of other uh, uh, tunnel protocols that have come up a bit lately. I've I've seen a number of people talking about uh, GTP tunneling, uh, which has something to do with with wireless carriers. Um, do you know anything about those tunnels or, or how they might relate to Open vSwitch? Um, I mean, so, so my background is definitely not telecom, but yeah, I mean, GTPU is used for uh, you know, cell networks that are talking together. Uh, so if you have subscribers that are roaming, then you, know, you might need to use a, a tunnel. Um, you know, just given the number of people that are interested in it, then you know, I certainly think it, it makes sense. And you know, if someone were to propose a, a clean patch for it, then it, it wouldn't be a problem. And probably the first thing to do there would be to get GTP tunnels in general into Linux? Um, actually, I believe that there's now support for them as of know, six months ago or something like that. So it probably actually wouldn't be that hard to add support for OVS as well. Oh, I see. And then uh, the, the other one that I think we're working on is uh, ERSpan, which is kind of an oddball when it comes to things that are that look like tunneling protocols. Right. So, I mean, that's definitely a, a slightly different use case for, for tunneling protocols in the sense that you're not using it for two machines to talk to each other directly you know, for their, their normal network traffic, but it, it's used for, um, say, monitoring what's going on on a switch port. So if you want to have a, a remote node that is tracking traffic or a certain type of traffic that is coming into a switch, then you can ask the switch to mirror it to a tunnel and, and send it over the network. Uh, to that machine, rather than having to walk into the wiring closet and plug something in. I usually think of that sort of thing as being almost one way. Um, but is, is there anything actually asymmetric? Would uh, If you were going to send and receive ER span at different places, would you just configure the tunnel on each end? Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. There's nothing really wrong with having asymmetric tunnels in general. I mean, people do it in, in lots of different places in, in carrier networks. But... Yeah, I mean, you definitely could configure a tunnel on one side to transmit and the other side to receive, and that's pretty much it. We've mostly been talking about uh, tunnels that encapsulate Ethernet, but there are uh, other things that people encapsulate in tunnels, like, uh, for example, uh, just uh, plain IP. And uh, we have at least one kind of tunnel that's used for that in uh, in OVS, the, the, the LISP tunnels. Uh, do you see this sort of thing becoming more important? Are there uh, are there interesting challenges there? Or yeah, I mean, I think that it, so. It's probably not actually much of a, a challenge in general for the tunneling protocols. Most of the, the modern protocols have a a field which allows you to specify what's coming up next. So if you can uh, generate IP and stick it into a tunnel, then the tunneling protocol will will support that just fine. I think probably the biggest thing is that. OVS has been 
very Ethernet focused in the past in terms of the, the, the data plane. Um, and so it, it certainly makes sense to decouple that and have OVS be able to handle other types of packets um, at, at the appropriate layer. But it'll probably take a bit of work to actually do that. Yeah, we've been so focused on Ethernet for such a long time that there's a lot of assumptions in there that, that probably need to be adjusted. Right. And we've done some of that, but there's a lot left to, right. not to do. So uh, just to wrap it up, uh, what, do you, what are your thoughts about the future of tunneling in, in OVS or, or in a, a broader context? Um, I mean, I think that at this point, tunneling is in pretty good shape, both in, in OVS and in general. Um, like I said, I mean, the, the two major problems that we ran into were performance and uh, extensibility. Both of those over a fairly long period of time now have been largely addressed. Um, and so we'll see more deployment and you know, maybe we'll run into new problems. Hopefully we won't. But uh, I think, you know, f- fundamentally the, the most interesting part is what you build on top of the tunnel. I mean, tunnel is not actually complicated, but, you know, if you can use it to build up more interesting abstractions, you know, on top of your network so that it's more programmable, you know, you have more control over it, that kind of thing, then, I mean, that, that's the real promise of, of what we're trying to get to here. I think that's a great point. I see a lot of people in networking who get obsessed with the protocols and, and not what you uh, can actually build out of them. Yep, that, that's definitely true. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jesse. Thank you. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons unported 3.0 license. The intro music in this episode is Drive by Alex Barroza, the bumper is Yeah Ant by Speck, and the outro is Space Bazooka by Kirkoid. All of the music is also licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 unported license. For more information about OpenVSwitch and OVS Orbit, please visit openvswitch.org.